Before you begin this podcast, you might want to make sure you have a nice pot of tea and maybe a plate of cookies available because you're going to hear some terrific storytelling from Felicity Hayes McCoy as we dig into Irish traditions and customs that are still practiced today. If today's podcast leaves you with a desire to visit Ireland, you can pick up my award-winning book, Planning the Ireland Vacation of Your Dreams, at store.irelandfamilyvacations.com and click Books. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star review at your favorite podcast host. And now, let's talk to Felicity. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for listening to the Traveling in Ireland podcast. I have a repeat guest today and a very recent repeat guest. Um, one of my very first episodes this year was with Felicity Hayes McCoy, who is a very great author and storyteller. And when I was researching the topic that we're covering today, which is Irish traditions and customs, that are, you know, old customs that are still practiced in Ireland, I knew that Felicity was the person um, that I needed to talk to. So, Felicity, thank you for joining me again so quickly. <laughs> well, hi, Jodie, and it's lovely to join you again so quickly. I'm delighted. Thank you for having me. Now, a lot of the reason that I, that I thought um, of you immediately when this topic was brought to my attention is because your books, The House on the Irish Hillside and Enough is Plenty, really do have deep ties into the traditions and customs in the Dingle Peninsula. And so, again, just immediately when this topic came to me, I thought of you just from that. Well, they do. Those Both of those books do deal um, with my own life here, I live at the very end of the Dingle Peninsula a lot of the time. Some of the time I spend other places getting work and doing work. But um, the house that I have, the house I'm sitting in at the moment, as I'm talking to you, sitting by the fire here, uh, is way, way, way down at the end of the western end of the Dingle Peninsula, almost before you fall into the Atlantic and swim mm -hmm. off to America. And it's a Gaelic area, so it's an area where Irish is the first language, where Gaelic is the first language of the people here. And there is still a very strong tradition of storytelling and the passing on of traditions and customs through storytelling and music. So in a way, I'm perfectly placed to be aware of your subject today <laughs> because it surrounds me. And the two books that I wrote, The House on an Irish Hillside, which is my first volume of memoir, is about coming here and coming back here to a place that I have known all my life and have now lived in for nearly 20 years. And the second of the books, Enough is Plenty, the year on the Dingle Peninsula, is an illustrated um, follow-on to that. And that book, Enough is Plenty, goes through the calendar year, the Celtic calendar year, looking at the four seasons and the 12 months of the year, through which superstitions, traditions, customs of that kind are usually quite tightly tied in. So I hope I can give you some information because I'm sitting in the right place to offer it to you. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm sure you can. Now, when people think of Irish customs and traditions. Um, obviously, St. Patrick's Day comes to mind. And 
it might not be the best example, but it did begin as a feast day to the patron saint. And it's not the only one that's celebrated in Ireland. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, the St. Patrick's Day one is an interesting example because uh, it, it it carries all all the hallmarks, as it were. You've got a feast day, so a day in the calendar that is given over to being aware of something. Uh, you've got that feast day in this instance being attached to a Christian saint, uh, St. Patrick, and there's a very, very long tradition in, in Irish storytelling and in Irish history of associating Patrick with the country. He's the patron saint of the country. Um, so to a large extent, that, that particular day is, is a very emblematic, obvious starting point. One of the things that I think is possibly quite interesting to people who, who don't spend a lot of time in Ireland uh, is that, yes, St. Patrick is a patron saint, but St. Breed, St. Bridget, uh, is in Ireland uh, on a par with him and, you know, to, and in fact older than he is in, in the tradition. So we would say uh, that, yes, St. Patrick's Day, which is the 17th of March, is, is a huge thing and it's a huge thing all over the world. But earlier in the year, on the eve of the 1st of February, we would celebrate St. Breed's Day. Lola Breed is how you would say it in Irish. It's St. Bridget's Day. And uh, she is the female saint who is associated with the beginning of the year, associated with the coming of spring. And it's very clear if you, if you look at um, the traditions, if you look at history, and if you look at the, the way these things are passed on, that her roots go back to uh, an earlier worship of or an earlier awareness of or celebration of a female goddess. The St. Patrick thing is interesting because um, very often Christian saints took over from associations with earlier deities or earlier um, spirits that were associated with particular mm -hmm. places. Breed is a perfect example of that. And of course, <laughs> it is equally true that the, the Christian male tradition took over from what was probably a more female matriarchal mm -hmm. society. I'm generalizing wildly here. But certainly <laughs> male saints uh, became very important in the mm -hmm. Christian tradition and female saints were only threatened after them, as we'd say here. In the Irish tradition, they certainly hold an equal place and breathe may even hold a, a, a stronger, warmer place in the hearts of people. Right, and, and it's not only those two, but there are different areas of Ireland that have their own patron saints. You'll find what are called pattern days across yes. Ireland and at different times of the year. So it's... Yes, yeah. And that's another case of the Christian tradition meshing with the earlier pre-Christian tradition because um, wherever you get a, a church in Ireland, and it's the same all over Europe, probably the same all over the world, um, there'll be a, if the Christian church is dedicated to a particular saint, and like here, I'm sitting up the hill from Ballyferreter village, which is down below us here, west of Dingle Town on the Dingle Peninsula. Ballyferreter's church is dedicated to St. Vincent, and St. Vincent would be, as it were, the patron saint of this parish. Down the way from us in Ventry, there is a church which is dedicated to Nefkleena, who's Kathleen or, or Catherine. Now, in the tr Christian tradition, she would be the St. Catherine of the Catherine wheel, you know, the burning wheel. Mm. She, was a, she was a martyr. Um, there would be on her feast day, and on the feast day of St. Vincent and the other saints associated with the various churches in various parts of the country, 
there will be a a feast day celebration that belongs to that uh, saint and by extension to that place and so you know you can go around if you're on your travels in Ireland you might turn up in a in, 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 and you're in the countryside you might turn up someplace and find that there's uh, you know there's there's music going on in the pubs or there are there's some kind of a march or certainly there might be a a special mass during the week rather than on Sunday in the church and it will be associated with that saint and by extension possibly associated as in the case of the Holy Wells with earlier worship that would have taken place in that place. Now Holy Wells I, is, is kind of a fun topic to bring up because when people are traveling to Ireland that's really kind of a big draw you know where can I find a Holy Well but holy wells aren't all created equal. They all have kind of different powers to them, as it were. Yeah. Well, one of the first things I think one has to know about holy wells is that they do not look like those little wells you see in the <laughs> illustrations of English books. You know, a little roundy stone thing with a little porchy roof on, over it and a, a bucket and a, and a white windlass. Those aren't wells in Ireland. A well, a holy well in Ireland, would be um, a spring well. It would be where water comes up, bubbles up um, from the land and will be gushing out between stones and holy wells could dry up if you have a dry summer or they could be producing a pool or even a little rivulet running away from themselves if you had, as we've had this year, a wet winter. <laughs> but the point is, it, it, it's a place where water emerges from the earth, where traditionally, and again, you're definitely talking pre-Christian here, mm -hmm. the spirit was worshipped, the goddess was worshipped. Um, in our area where we are here on the Dingle Peninsula, in Irish the Dingle Peninsula, Peninsula is called Corcohoina. And Baina, uh, Corca means the area of the place of, and Baina would be a name. And that name is the name of the goddess, the goddess Danu in, in English. Uh, and she would have been worshipped in Celtic country, countries all the way across Europe. You know, you get her name appearing in like the River Don, the River Danube, um, and she appears even in India. Her name means water. And of course, people all over the world have always worshipped water because water is what keeps us alive. You know, you can live longer without food than you can, than you have to have water. So they would have gone and they would have uh, responded to these places and they would have prayed at them and they would have worshipped the goddess at them. Time would have passed, Christians uh, would have arrived here, the, the country would have been Christianized, and in some places, the goddess would have been replaced by a Christian saint. Mm -hmm. St. Breed, for example, St. Bridget. So you get a lot of Bridget's wells mm -hmm. in Ireland. But you also get wells dedicated to other other um, saints. Uh, we have a, one right across the road here from where I'm sitting. It's Mologa's well. He was a, a medieval Irish male saint. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that that well would originally have been a place where people worshipped a male deity or a, a male saint. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's more likely to have, that he replaced a woman. But we just don't know. We simply right. can't tell because these will be very ancient places. And Holy Wells, it, it, there are maps out there, and I'll be sure to link to um, a Holy Well map in the show notes. So if you're interested in Holy Wells, um, do pop down there. But... They're not always in places that you would expect them to be. I mean, there's one, there's a St. Bridget's Well near the Cliffs of Moher, and I, it, it's just really, there's, it's set off the side of the road, and if you blink, you miss it. 
Um, but then there's another one that's a bit more obvious uh, right there by Gugambara in West Cork. So there's there's no rhyme or reason. Like you said, they just it's where the, the water came up and, and gatherings took place. And and when they started, you know, there was nothing else around. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one thing that, that if you're traveling in Ireland, it's always a fun thing to do, and it's a very interesting thing to do, because it can lead you in different directions, is if you see on your map, or if you see, um, you know, if somebody tells you, you go up there past the St. Bridget's, or past the Bridget's Well, or Bride's Well, you see that name turning mm -hmm. up. If, if you listen to or look at place names, often you find that they are attached to the site of a well of some kind, a holy well of some kind. Now, the, the well itself may have disappeared. I grew up in, in uh, suburban Dublin in the 1960s, and the house that I lived in had been built, you know, we moved into a new house. It was the beginning of urban sprawl at the edge of, of, of Dublin city. And just down the road from us, we played in what was a piece of scrubland that hadn't yet been built on. And we called it St. Bridget's, and it was known as St. Bridget's. And when I look back and think about it, it was the remnants of a wood, and there was a small spring in the center of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that now is completely gone. It's been built over. There's nice little semi-detached houses. But the estate is called St. Bridget's. Mm -hmm. And it's lost. You know, it's underneath. Mm -hmm. But the well is still there somewhere. The water is still underneath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that you can... Uh, you can find interesting stories if you if you look out for them and you ask local people. And you, right. say, you know, why is that called that? And in some places, as a tourist, you know, you might turn up on August the 12th and not know and have no reason to know that the previous month was the pattern day for that well. Pattern just comes from patron, the patron mm -hmm. saint, and it became the pattern day. The pattern day for that well may have been the previous month. All the local people might have been out you know, doing the rounds of the well. They walk around in circles around the well praying and you leave little stones down to count the number, like you do with the rosary mm -hmm. beads, to count the number of times you've gone round. And when you've done, they're usually multiples of three. You've done three rounds in one direction, three in the other, and nine the other way and so forth. <laughs> there there may, might be particular prayers. There might be particular things that uh, people say or songs that are sung. All of that might have happened when you missed it. <laughs> because there wouldn't be assigned to it and, and you wouldn't know about it. So it's worth asking. And it's worth also being careful if there is a pattern day, sort of saying, do, do you mind if we come along, rather than just crowding in and taking photographs. Right. Because they're religious services still. Um, and they, they do happen and they're, they're fascinating. They involve things like leaving things behind. You might leave um, a ribbon or a pin or uh, something behind there as kind of giving something back to the to the place, to the goddess, to the saint, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in return for um, for him or her looking uh, positively on your prayers. You, you pray mm -hmm. for the dead or you pray for something you want and you leave something in the place. Sometimes if you're a tourist, you turn up and you'll wonder, what are all these bits of ribbon fluttering here tied onto this bush or underneath these stones? That's what you're looking at. And, you know, that makes me think of uh, the Hill of Tara. Because I know that not far from the Hill of Tara, there is a holy well. I cannot for the life of me remember who it is dedicated to. But then also on the Hill of Tara is a rag tree. And, yeah. and so the, the tying of things not only happens at holy wells, but also happens at these rag trees. And that's kind of an interesting tradition as well. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, basically, that, that was interesting because it's interesting because there are sort of various strands to, to what it may or may not mean. Um, and I do want to repeat it endlessly to your listeners that <laughs> there is no certainty about any of these things. There are lots of folklorists and archaeologists um, over the centuries, over the years, telling each other, I think it's this, I think it's that. Mm -hmm. And there'll be people who will be absolutely certain that there's no connection between the Christian <laughs> tradition and the pagan tradition, and that's just nonsense, and there's proof. Well, there'll be another person who'll tell you the opposite. I'm not an authority. I can only pass on <laughs> what I understand that people believe and people think and people have said. But with the, the, those trees, for example, a lone bush or a single tree standing in the landscape has traditionally been associated with the fairies, the spirits, the gods, the, the otherworldly people. Uh, sometimes it's, it's believed to be growing above the entrance point to uh, the underworld, physically, literally, going into the mounds or going in underneath the hills, uh, and underneath there is the other world. Sometimes it's supposed to be magic in itself because it grows alone and doesn't need anything else to support it. But traditionally, they are places where people have gone to try and get in touch with the supernatural. And inevitably, therefore, they, <laughs> as time passed, became associated with the church and with, with, with saints. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of tying uh, ribbons or pieces of, of rag or attaching something to branches, if you look at other cultures, you know, Tibetan um, prayer flags, mm -hmm. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an instinct in the human being to feel that I go to a place and I pray, and then I leave behind me with whatever spirit lives there a memory of the fact that I was there. It's like something that, that literally flags, mm -hmm. remember me, remember that I prayed, remember that I came and gave you something. It's like the instinct to light candles and then leave the church and go out and leave the flame flickering there to mm -hmm. remind the deity that you were there and ask that you be listened to. And you find those, you find um, rag trees all over the country here still. Uh, people, I think sometimes people go back to the earliest and the oldest beliefs when they're most desperate to be answered in their prayers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when they feel, I've, I've been to the doctor and the doctor has given me the pills and maybe I'll get better, but maybe if I go to the older place and I ask <laughs> the older spirit, it will help. It, 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 yeah. it, can't, it can't hurt to have a little more backup. <laughs> yeah, and also I think there's something communal about it. There's something cumulative and communal about it. You feel that you're taking part in something that because it has happened over and over again across millennia has built up an engine of power. So it's not just you asking, it's your community and your ancestors asking and, your, um, and the place itself speaking to the place itself and speaking for you. Does that kind of make sense? It, it does. It really does. It, it kind of makes me think of in the U.S., uh, the Native American tribes, there's uh, an area in Wyoming that's called Devil's Tower, and it has a, a wonderful backstory of, of bears and being saved and, and things like that. But it's still a very holy place. There are times that the National Park Service asks people to not climb the tower due to traditions of the month. Um, it's a very holy time. And then at that place, you'll also find bits of, of cloth tied to the trees and they do say don't touch those those are prayer rags they are there they are very sacred um you know you are on holy land i think 
throughout the world there is this idea in the Celtic tradition it's called the idea of thin places mm-hmm. the idea that there are certain parts of the landscape which where it is possible to reach through to the supernatural to a supernatural dimension more easily than in other places and they tend to be remote or high places dangerous difficult to get to and they're they're seen as you know the word numinous is the word that describes them in the house on an Irish hillside I I found myself having to use that word and to explain the meaning of that word because I literally couldn't think of another word that describes mm-hmm. what I meant as well it's it's a sense of awe it's a sense of um uh being isolated and yet absolutely surrounded by life mm-hmm. and it's best understood by not so much trying to describe it as saying to somebody, you know the way you feel when you are standing in the middle of a starry, starry night entirely mm-hmm. on your own, and it feels, and you use the word magical. Mm-hmm. Well, in that sense, I think that's what numinous means. And thin places in the Irish tradition, I think, probably chime with what you are describing in the Native yes. American tradition. Sacred places, places yes. that allow the human being to get in touch with something outside the individual and the, and the community that links them, that something links them with the place and where they live. Yes. And I, I think there isn't a person in the world that doesn't feel it on some level, that, that just little ripple down, down your spine of awe mm-hmm. in particular places. It's why people say, you know, beauty is awesome. Everyone talks about the, the scenery in Ireland being awesome. Mm-hmm. And it comes from that sense of, good heavens, it's so big. So much bigger than me. So much more important than I am. Excellent, excellent way to put it. But the thin places, I wanted, I want to delve into that a little bit more because there are a lot of thin places in Ireland, places that are revered, I suppose, or maybe feared even a little bit. Um, thinking of fairy circles or is it blackthorn trees? Yeah. Those kind of things. Well, I think that that has to do with everything that is powerful, everything that is immensely strong, has the potential for both good and evil at an immensely strong level, <laughs> at an immensely powerful level. So, you know, I mean, if you, if, if you take something as simple as you, you keep drugs locked away, I mean, medical drugs, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drugs, you keep them locked away from kids, and you say, no, 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 that's dangerous, that's very strong. And, you know, a child says to you, well, yeah, but that's what makes mommy better when she's ill. And you say, ah, yes, but it's very dangerous. And the truth mm-hmm. is that things, a knife is very dangerous. You know, it's great. Right. You can chop off your food with it. You can also kill somebody with it. Well, in the same sense, I think that there is, there is always fear attached to awe or attached to power. So you mentioned the fairy mounds. But there are a lot of prehistoric grave mounds in Ireland. The, there, there was a series of different people who came here Sorry, this is real power paraphrasing, and an archaeologist would throw their hands <laughs> up in horror. But there, there, were, there were various people who came here who made, um, who, who had the custom of burying their dead and piling mounds over them, mm-hmm. grave mounds over them. And there would have been a memory in the countryside that the dead were inside those mounds. Mm-hmm. That memory probably, and there would have been a memory of um, rituals being held at those mounds mm-hmm. because, you know, when they were buried, there would have been funeral rites. Possibly there would have been annual funeral, um, you know, memories, commemorations of the dead. So there would be a sense that, that they, they were places that were revered and were associated with the dead. From that, you get the possibility of reaching to the supernatural, but you also get the possibibility of the supernatural being dangerous. 
mm-hmm. death itself threatening you. And over time, though ideas uh, grew and stories grew that, uh, that it was in fact a supernatural race that lived inside in that mound, that, you know, that the dead had gone into the mounds but were still in there. Then over time again, when those um, that race who were seen as gods or demigods fell down lower in the tradition because the Christian God came in, mm-hmm. uh, th- those previous powerful gods were either cons- uh, sort of... Um, they were put down and they were put aside and they were condemned by Christians as being wizards and bad gods and maybe devils and attached to bad, dangerous things. Or they were derided and just became little fairies, little, small, dangerous, little um, pinprick sort of mm-hmm. power, mm-hmm. not actually come out and, and be bigger than the Christian god power. So they became fairy mounds. And the fairy mounds in Ireland, are, the fairies in Ireland are not like English fairies or they're not, not Tinkerbell. <laughs> they're not Tinkerbell. They don't have gauzy wings. They aren't little fluttery things that live in flowers. They are spirits. They are usually quite dangerous. They might be malign. They might be they, they might be people creatures that needed to be propitiated and to be to be uh, constantly held at arm's length mm-hmm. by giving mm-hmm. sacrifices or by doing things that will will chase them away. They are essentially dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so you would stay away from those trees. You would stay away from those mounds. Still the case that there will be fields that farmers own and they would not. That's one of the reasons why we have such fantastic archaeological inheritance. Yes. They would not plow through those wet mounds. They would not mm-hmm. knock them down. They would work around them because mm-hmm. it was dangerous to break into the fairy mound. Well, and, and you still find that today when they, uh, I know that when they put, what, the M6 across the country, they yep. had to detour it to avoid yes, some of absolutely. those mounds. And it wasn't all for archaeological reasons. Yes. And people wouldn't sell the fields because they might get bad luck. Uh, the same, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, it would be very dangerous to build a house uh, on a fairy site, you know, mm-hmm. too close to a fairy ring. Um, now, fairy rings can be different things. They can be, you know, there's the, the the fungi thing, a circle of mushrooms that would grow up mm-hmm. overnight in, in, in a field and it wasn't there yesterday and it's there this morning and it's gone, you know, so it's, it's seen as slightly magical. But generally speaking, they're attached to, to mounds or circles of trees. And you'll find that, you know, in the past there would have been all sorts of customs and traditions which had to do with what would now be religious feasts, but then would have been tied in with pagan feasts. For example, um, if you take Beltana, you take uh, May, May Eve, mm-hmm. and again, this is not specific to Ireland, you'll get this all the way across Europe, um, there will always have been rituals on May Eve. They're turning points. They're, you know, the point when you're going from one season into another. And if you're a rural community, absolutely dependent on agriculture or, or dependent on your flocks, those are the dangerous times, you know, the times when maybe the sun won't shine and we'll never get spring back or mm-hmm. we'll never get summer back and we, therefore we'll have a bad harvest, therefore we'll all starve in the winter. So on those turning points, May Eve being one, you would have had ritual dancing, you would have had uh, bonfires, and it's still the case all over Ireland, even in, in the cities, that you will see flowers scattered on, on doorsteps sometimes. I mean, you will sometimes see <laughs> scattered on doorsteps on May Eve. Uh, tr- 
traditionally that was yellow flowers that were associated with the goddess, associated with light, brightness, the coming of, of, of summer, the coming of mm-hmm. coming back of sunshine. And I mean, I still do it here. People do it a lot here. You'd hang out or you'd put out those flowers on thresholds to your house and also to animal houses, you know, mm-hmm. barns and sheds where you keep animals. St. Bridget, again, if you go back to the St. Bridget's Cross, the St. Bridget's Cross is traditionally made on the eve of St. Bridget's Day. It's made out of rushes. They're woven together. You see wonderful examples of them in, in, in some of the folk museums in Ireland. But they're still made. I mean, yesterday I was at a, at a music session and we were all sitting talking and uh, they were talking about the fact that the children in the school had been making Bridget's Crosses because St. Bridget's Day is coming up later on this mm-hmm. coming week. And those crosses were made to be brought home and hung over the door of animal houses and, and dwellings, domestic dwellings, mm-hmm. as protection. And they would hang there. And there are different traditions. In some places, you, you leave them up always until they fall apart. In mm-hmm. other places, you have to put up a new one every year. Different places would have their own specific customs and traditions. When we moved into this house I'm sitting in now, uh, one of the things that was in the house was the Bridges Cross. And I've never put it out. It's if you came in through up my door mm-hmm. now, it's hanging, it's hanging in the porch. It belonged to the house, and I don't know what the tradition would have been, so I wasn't going to get rid of it. It's it's really interesting because you were at first talking about uh, Beltania or Beltane, as they would say in England, yeah. um, which we celebrate in the U.S. as May Day. So yeah. even these old traditions that you think may not be apparent or you know may not be celebrated other than someplace like Ireland it's kind of interesting to see how they really still are a part of your life today it's I think that one of the reasons why they they sort of are less evident in of which is again dreadful generalization but I was going to say in ordinary life today now, what on earth am I talking about you know somebody in an African village would look at me and say how do you think you are <laughs> life is your life but what I mean is I think that um, they are very strongly rooted in a time or a place or both where life was dominated by the seasons mm-hmm. where you live close to the earth you grow your own food, you are dependent on the weather to provide you with the means of staying alive. And so you're terribly conscious of those turning points in the year. And if you look at it now, I mean, one of the things I say in, I can't remember whether it's the house on an Irish hillside or enough is plenty, it could be both. But anyway, one thing I've noticed is, look at fashions in mm-hmm. ordinary urban life in, in, in the first world now. The fashions change with the seasons, in fact. There's this, here we all are and we're wrapped up in our lovely warm woolies and we're in plum-coloured and mm-hmm. earth-coloured things and we're, you know, the, the, we're, we like the idea of firelight, which is deep red. As soon as spring comes, we're all going for floral patterns, pastel colours, you know, changing our mm-hmm. clothing. And the, the, uh, the, the fashion industry and consumerism encourages us to tap into that feeling by telling us to buy more things. Mm-hmm. Paint your entire kitchen a different color because it's now spring. Or <laughs> has, it, you know, has it occurred to you that everything's looking a bit dingy and dark? Go out and buy something and make it better. Well, or else go out into the garden and look at the fact that there are flowers coming up. 
Mm-hmm. You know, but you don't have to pay anybody for that. So that's not what they're selling to you. They're, they're, they're reaching down to an instinct that is absolutely deep in us as human beings, a sense of the passing of the seasons and the turning of the seasons. Or even and spring I, cleaning. I mean, that, that kind of yeah. goes with it. Just Absolutely. Purification. Mm-hmm. I have a, you know, that you mentioned it, I just remember there's a, there's a whole chapter about that in, <laughs> in, uh, in Office Plenty. Um, the, the whole idea of ritual purification in spring in the Irish Celtic tradition is tied in with the idea of, um, it being lambing time. You know, you, it, it ties into a, a culture which relied heavily on, on, on sheep and, mm-hmm. The time of year at which sheep become pregnant in bulk, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the the season in uh, spring in Ireland is called in bulk, and that word in bulk comes from in bulk, and bulk means the stomach, and it refers to pregnancy in sheep. The time of year when sheep become pregnant. <laughs> it's also the time of year when you cannot be certain of the weather. It might be beautiful, balmy spring, and the lambs up on the hills are grand, or it might suddenly become freezing cold and terrible, and mm-hmm. the lambs up in the hills die of the cold. So it's a turning point that is very dangerous, and so there's a lot of ritual associated with that turning point going into spring. And another turning point that we still celebrate today, but in a different way, was Sawan, which is now Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, exactly as you say, it is it is a moment when you're going from one one point to another, and in in many cultures, particularly in, in specifically in in, um, in the Celtic culture, those are the dangerous points. That's why thresholds are dangerous. The stepping from one place to the next is the point at which things might go wrong. And so when you're turning, uh, and it's pronounced so in in English, and it's pronounced Samhain in Irish, for into the season of Samhain, which is the autumn when you're going into mm-hmm. winter um that's particularly dangerous because it's a thin place it's a thin time it's when and it's going into darkness and darkness is the realm of the dead so there is a, a strong belief that at that period halloween which in english is halloween is the evening of the dead the hallowed mm-hmm. saints and souls at that point the ancestors would have been revered there would have been a sense that um, on that night the the dead could come back to the places that they used to live in. People used to leave doors open so that they could come in, but they were also afraid of nasty spirits coming in, people who weren't happy about, I don't know, what you'd done to the house that they died or how you left the money or the fact that you'd sold off the field or whatever it was. So there was always the two things, trick or treat. Do we risk the danger that they will come and play evil tricks on us, or, you know, in, in, in a real mm-hmm. sense, come in and do something evil to us? Or can we stop them doing something evil by giving them a treat, by leaving out food for the dead, by leaving ritual things on the doorstep that will make them stop and be happy and see themselves as revered? And that's where Halloween comes from. That's where mm-hmm. trick or treat comes from. And that idea of kids going around dressed up to look scary what they're doing is they are doing a, a, they are enacting a ritual version of what people hoped for and feared at that turning point in the year that's just it's, it's incredible when you actually look at the history 
of how that came about. Now, there's one more holiday tradition in Ireland that I really want to touch on. It's one that I think we should celebrate everywhere, and that is the Little Christmas. Oh, yes. We should celebrate that everywhere. <laughs> I, that's part of my mission in life is to get all the women in the world aware of this one. Uh, little Christmas, or Woman's Christmas, or Woman's Little Christmas, as it's sometimes called, it takes place on the, on the 6th of January. It's a big, big, big thing in Ireland. And what always interests me is that there are parts of the country where it's fallen into abeyance and it's hardly been being um, celebrated for maybe a generation and a half or two generations. And in, in that short a time, people can forget. But there was a time when it was all over the country. Um, it, it has never been lost in many, many parts of the country, and it's actually beginning to come back throughout the whole country again. And it is Woman's Christmas Day. It's the day in the Christmas season when women take off from their houses. The, traditionally, the idea is that the men will do the women's work, whatever that is. So the men will be at home cooking or cleaning or looking after the children. And the women will be out visiting each other in their homes. Or more usual nowadays, what will happen is you'll get a bunch of women of all generations, you know, sisters, mothers and grannies, uh, friends that have known each other for years and years, aunts and, and their nieces, they'll go out, they'll book a table in a restaurant, they'll go down to the pub together, they'll go out and celebrate, and they'll just have their own woman's feast. And it's, I have a friend who, who sent me a lovely photograph, she changed her Facebook photograph a while back, and she had this beautiful photo. And I said, God, you look gorgeous, you know, where did you get that photo? And she said it was, it was Woman's Christmas, it's called Nolig Naman, the, the Christmas of the Women, uh, this year, and it was the first year that my two daughters were both old enough for the three of us to go out together in the evening time and have a meal. And she said it was like the happiest day of the year, and my daughter took that photograph because it was just the three girls out having a great time together. That's excellent. And it's, I know that it lands on Feast of the Epiphany, so January yeah. 6th. And it's also kind of the whole, you know, women work so hard during the holiday season. Yeah. It's it's their day. Yeah, it's the feeling that women have, you know, before the Christmas Day, they've been running around cleaning the house and getting organized and doing the shopping. And then they've been the ones who've been doing the baking and the cooking. And I don't know about you, but when I was a child, when I think about it, you know, my mother was first up on Christmas morning. Mm-hmm getting things into the oven and there were five children in my house and you went to mass on Christmas morning and so everybody had to be washed and cleaned and in their clothes. You walked to mass, so everybody had to be walked there. It was early in the morning, it was dark. It was a day of hard work. Mm -hmm. Before my mother sat down, she had two days work done. Mm -hmm. So that sense that at the end of the Christmas season, there's just a period when the woman steps away and when women can... And nowadays it it tends to happen outside the home. But in the past, quite often what you had was just women gathered in one of, you know, in Granny's house or wherever it might be. And the men would either go out or they would would be the ones putting the children to bed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lovely thing nowadays in the countryside, of course, which is one of the jobs the men have uh, (laughs) on on, on Nolik Naman, is is to pick you up from the restaurant. You know, you're not driving Mm -hmm. because you've been having a glass of wine. So you'll see restaurants full of women drinking and chatting and eating and dancing and singing. And then the end of the day, you know, coming to, to half eleven at night or whatever it might be, you see all these cars being driven by men to pick them up and drive them home. I think this is a tradition that really 
we we need to we need to bring it back in full force. <laughs> oh yeah, and the intergenerational thing I think is fabulous. The fact that you know you you drive past a uh, at the pub here or a restaurant here, and and often you'll see three generations of women at a table together. You know, and that's I think that's fantastic. It's or you know you might see a group of girls at the same age, but very often it's done where you get one child falling asleep at the end, of the <laughs> and, and the granny still chatting at the other end. Uh, generationally, and and that really is the root of all tradition is the the passing on from generation to generation. But we can't end this conversation without talking about the solstices and stone circles. Oh, goodness, we are dealing with big stuff, aren't we? I know. Well, and we don't have to go deep into it, but everybody who has an interest in Ireland has heard of Newgrange. It's probably the most well-known solstice viewing, which happens with the longest day of the year, winter, or the shortest day of the year, my apologies, winter. But they may not realize that there are stone circles all over Ireland, and not all of them align with that single solstice. Yes, they are. Stone circles are, are particularly fascinating because we can only infer from where they are placed what they might have been about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we can discover that they surround a uh, burial place. That's easy enough. You know, you dig and you find bones, and you say, oh, "Okay, this is something to do with the graveyard." But to what extent the bodies were buried there because it was a place to bury bodies and to what extent they may have been sacrifices of some kind, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. We know that these were clearly important places and special places partly because they would have taken so much communal effort to build. And if you think of a society that is just in the business of subsistence farming, keeping itself alive, feeding itself through the year, and then you think of the numbers of man and woman hours it would have taken to drag stones someplace and stand them up in a shape. And then you think of the numbers of hours it would have taken observing the world mm-hmm. so that you can stand them up in a particular way so that on a particular day of the year, light will fall through them such that one specific spot gets lit up. Mm-hmm. That's a heck of a lot of energy and time and and resources put into something. Therefore, it must have been very, very, very important. There is an argument that says perhaps if they were calendars and they told you when to, to, to plant your, 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 your corn. Well, that doesn't seem massively likely to me because I think you can probably work that out without doing this hugely complicated right. thing. <laughs> right. so there must have been something else attached to it. I'm sure it was attached to the idea of, of uh, seasons and turning points in the seasons being mm-hmm. very, very important. But the practical purposes of it, we don't understand. We know there must have been spiritual purposes attached to them. We know, uh, and in some cases, you don't find out, well, you don't rediscover, because people would always know what they were there for, Mm -hmm. but you don't rediscover the lost knowledge of what they were there for, except quite late and by accident. There's a place way up the mountain here, Mount Brandon, back here where I am, and only a couple of years ago, by physically going up there at a time of year when most people wouldn't go up there because mm-hmm. it was too dreadful, it was discovered that it was a light box. And yes, the, the setting sun or the rising sun, I, don't, I can't remember which, uh, at a particular point of the, of the year, which was the solstice turning point, struck into this particular box up there on the mountain. How many others are there buried in the heather we don't know about? Right. And they were there for a purpose. 
and they are they are numinous places in the sense that they make you feel uh, something huge was going on here. There are all sorts of suggestions that they may have been linked by ley lines, you know, so that a place a hundred miles or twenty miles away from another place may have had a, a connection. The people mm-hmm. who built them might have done them as much bigger projects than just those single projects. There mm-hmm. might have been connections between ones happening across the hundreds of miles. We just don't know. They are fascinating places to visit. And in a way, finding the small ones is almost more exciting and interesting. Go to local museums, go to small local museums and ask people. Mm-hmm. Some place like Newgrange is, is mind-bogglingly extraordinary and wonderful. And it's beautifully curated, so you can find mm-hmm. out and there are books and so forth. But just going out onto the side of a mountain yourself and standing among stones where there is nobody else, mm-hmm. there's just something quite extraordinary about that. And and there are so many places that are passed by. There are stone circles all over Ireland. I think one of my favorites is in Limerick, Loch Gur, and the Grange Stone Circle, which is the largest one in Ireland. Most people don't know it's there, and they drive from Limerick to Killarney with no knowledge of a, a short detour that would take them there. Or in Meath, Loch Crewe, which is high up on a very large climb to the top of Loch Crewe. But it's yep. it's like a smaller version of Newgrange, and there are hardly any people there, even in the high season of summer. Yeah. And one thing you can do as well is very often stone circles will have own stones as part of them, mm-hmm. you know, stones that have carvings on them in in uh, the early early form of writing that is ohm, called ohm. And if there's an ohm stone in on a site, then the 3D OM project, which is going on at the moment, which is an archaeological project, which is mapping all of the OM stones in the country in 3D, and you can actually find them online. Now, they haven't, they haven't done the half of them yet, or they have done a number of them. I don't know how many they have done, but there's much more work to be done. But if you were coming to Ireland and you went online and looked at the 3D OM project, you might find places you might have thought of going to, mm-hmm. places you might have thought of looking at. Up the hill, as I'm looking out my window here, um, there's a field up the hill that belongs to a farmer and uh, there is a, a stone circle, not a stone circle, there's a, there's a mound and on the top of the mound there is a, an ohm stone which I know has been mapped by the, the 3D ohm project and that's a place you drive past and you wouldn't even know it was there. Right. And so we'll be sure to link that in the show notes as well because that is going to be fascinating. Another thing, and I wasn't going to bring this up, but you bringing up the, the ohm stones made me remember that there is also an online directory of Sheila Gig. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are, perfectly. And those are an interesting little carving as well. Sheila Gigs are, again, magnificent. And the, the, one of the lovely things about them, if you're interested in these things, is the, the amount of argument that has gone into trying to explain what they're about and why they're there and they, they get kind of used as as emblems of different ways of viewing mm-hmm. the world and different ways of I mean they even get used as political emblems and what they are is they are, they are stone carvings they appear in, in, in some cases on, on quite late medieval Christian churches and they appear also in quite early stones that you'll find out on the mountainside and they're they're small grotesque images of uh, of an ancient woman there sometimes you even the head is like a skull and the, the the you can actually see the ribs almost as though you're looking at a skeleton and she's sitting with her knees up or her legs open and she's reaching around and she's holding open her vagina so she looks like 
a, a very scary, deathly kind of image, mm-hmm. absolutely centre, centred on the idea of either female fertility or sexuality or both. A bit difficult to take one away from the other. And over the centuries, they've been looked at in very different ways. I mean, there are periods of time when they were seen as utterly pornographic and frightening and disgusting, mm-hmm. and people refused to believe they could be old and deeply troubled by the fact that they appeared on Christian churches sometimes. They tend to appear in, in, in quite difficult places to see them. You know, they'll be up high or they'll, yeah. be, they'll be behind something. And all sorts of different theories as to what they were about. The one that seems to me to be most likely in their earliest incarnation, at least, is that they are an, they are an image of fertility that attaches, that belongs to a tradition that sees the woman as triple aspect. She is the mother, the maiden, and the crone, or rather the maiden, mm-hmm. the mother, and the crone. And it's the three, the three stages of, of female life. The girl growing up who is the virgin, there is mm-hmm. the mother who is the female whose womb is expressing what it is, has been designed for. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the female who can become pregnant and, and give birth. And then the ancient crone who has knowledge and who has wisdom, uh, but he is no longer fertile. Yet, she is pregnant with the possibility of the future. She is pregnant with the endless circle of life. So she cannot be dismissed as unimportant because in the Celtic worldview, life doesn't begin at birth. Life begins with possibility. It begins with a seed. It begins in darkness. And that's why the first season of the Celtic year is not spring, it's winter, it's Samhain. Mm-hmm. Because in that period of darkness, that's when the seed is germinating and growing. And then it comes to fruition in birth. So one theory, and it's one that I subscribe to, is that the crone in the Sheila Nagig image contains the whole picture, the picture of death and the picture of life, and that a woman and a woman's womb in a society that perhaps didn't quite understand exactly what it was, the male, you know, when did you actually Mm -hmm. become pregnant? You know, at what point did it actually happen? There are societies that believe that men had nothing to do with it, that women became pregnant on their own. Perhaps we had one. I don't know here in Ireland. (laughs) But those, the the Shinley gigs are wonderful because, of course, they've become, in modern times, they've become emblems of feminism in Ireland. There's wonderful ones attacked. You get them in, in medieval, very strongly male situations. Like I know that there's a Sheila in the gig on a bishop's tomb. Mm-hmm. And I cannot like, remember where it is. But there is a carved Sheila in the gig actually incorporated as part of the funereal statuary of a bishop's, a medieval bishop's tomb. Possibly she just existed for him as, a, as an image of immortality on a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. But they're great. They used to be concealed and seen as, as um, things you shouldn't let the children see. Um, but you can, you can find them much more easily now because people are more interested and understand more and don't see them as dangerous anymore. You know, they are dangerous in the sense that they're the dangerous woman, both <laughs> life and death carried within her. Yeah. But that's actually powerful and interesting as well. It is. And and again, I will link that in the show notes. So these show notes are going to have a lot of further information for those who are interested. Now, we've talked a long time and I feel like we could go on and on and on just digging into it. But I think that this has been a really great overview to kind of show that 
those old traditions that when you look at them in a different way, you realize that they are a little more relevant and exist closer to the surface than you might think. I think that's a really good summation, yeah. And I think that you can, you know, if you say to yourself, well, they only exist in some place like Ireland, and you think of Ireland as being sort of quaint and old-fashioned, you totally miss the point. Uh, if you're a traveler and you travel around the world, you see versions of these all mm-hmm. over the place, and you can you can feel that rhythm in your own life if you're interested in finding it. And I think it, it um, it's rather, uh, it's both relaxing and releasing and energizing. Exactly, exactly. It's a great way to put it. Now, as we wrap up, you know, I always ask for places where you can kind of get a really good feel of the topic we're talking about. And because we're talking about traditions and customs, I wondered if there were a a couple of places or a few tips that you might have to help people when they are traveling. Maybe get an experience of this. Driving is the very best way to experience everything Ireland has to offer. And that's why I'm excited to partner with Irish Car Rentals to provide unbeatable quotes for your Ireland vacation. When you're ready to book your car rental, visit irishcarrentals.com and use promotion code IFV for Ireland Family Vacations in the promotions box. Thanks so much for listening. Now here come those recommended places to visit. Yeah, I think that that if one goes from the the very simple and and personal up to the curated, as it were, <laughs> experience, you can get the two ends of that spectrum by saying to yourself when you come to Ireland, well, I'll I'll try and tap into what's there just by doing simple things like chatting to people in pubs, talking to the person who runs my bed and breakfast, the smaller the places you stay in, you know, as opposed to big international hotels, the the more likely you are to find people who can Mm -hmm. tell you about local things. Look at the maps, ask yourself, why is that place called that? What does that mean? Does that link me into some kind of uh, connection with with the kinds of traditions or the kinds of customs that were or may still be the part of, of life in that place that I've come to look at? So those are small little things, just things you might spot out of the corner of your eye. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's the, there's the wonderful, wonderful museum in in, in Castlebar, where part of the National Museum's collection is held that deals specifically with folk life and the vernacular, uh, vernacular furniture you might have found, the sorts of things that you would have found in people's houses, the kinds of houses they would have lived in. And that experience of going to that museum, which in itself is a beautiful place and wonderfully, wonderfully curated, gives you a sense of the surroundings, which would have been the the context for these mm-hmm. kinds of traditions and superstitions. Not going back all that far, you know, it's, it, the stuff that would be there would be 19th century, 18th century, mm-hmm. if you're lucky, 17th century. And I'm talking about, and you're talking about traditions that go back much, much further. But they would still have been very much celebrated in those kinds of contexts. And over and above the fact that it's a fantastic museum itself. It's a good entry point for looking at this subject. It is. It's a great entry point. Um, I know they have quite a collection of Bridget's Crosses. They have a lot of harvest knots, um, yes. which take place in the which fall. Didn't go near. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even touch that one. There's so much. 
There's so yeah. much. So you did mention people looking at maps. Are there certain place name parts that they should be looking for on a map that might give them a hint of of why it was named that way or what they might find? Well, you see, most of the names you'll find on Irish maps are Irish language names that you're seeing in an English version. Mm-hmm. The, the country was mapped while Ireland was still part of the United Kingdom. And the, the maps that you're looking at now will have names that are approximations of the Irish language words. Mm-hmm. So uh, often you might miss something. You, you think of a place called, like, like if you got to a place that was called Crossara, C-R-O-S-S-A-R-A, that just sounds like a word. Sounds like it might be a name of a place, but it is actually the word for crossida, which means a crossroads. And one of the things that people did in, in, in Ireland a lot was they used to have dances and gatherings at crossroads. Now, the fact that there's a place called Crossera may suggest that you're in a place where there used to be gatherings, and you could ask people if they knew anything about that. Now, that's a, that's just one example. Brideswell, as I said before. St. Bridget's, those sorts of things usually attached to, to, to Holy Wells. Holy Well, you get a lot. And very often, if you see a, if you see a, a name and you find, as people often do when they come to Ireland, you find yourself thinking, how on earth do I pronounce that? You know, where do you put the stress on the word? Mm-hmm. Crossara, Crossara, Crossara. And the reason why you're not quite sure how it's pronounced is you're actually looking at an anglicization of an Irish word. Right. So it might be useful to, to, to say to yourself, I'll ask somebody how you pronounce that and what it means. There will be parts of Ireland where they don't know. There will be parts of Ireland where English has been spoken for so long and you might be talking to the wrong person and they actually can't remember the Irish meaning uh, of the word, the fact that it comes from an Irish word. Most places people will know and, and sometimes it leads you to fascinating stories. Excellent. And I actually am going to include a link for an article on my site that was written by Owen O'Connor about the Irish you see on road signs. And that will be really helpful if you're wanting a little more background into why places are named the way they are. Yeah, it's a lovely, if you're a traveler, you know, if your instincts are to travel, then that's a great way in is through maps. Uh, Not just in order to tell you how to get from A to B, but to tell you what it is you're looking at when you get there. Well, Felicity, we've talked for a long time and I, I can't thank you enough for taking this chunk out of your evening to talk to me. And I know we could go on and on and on. So I am just going to, again, refer people to the house on the Irish hillside and enough is plenty if they want to dig in a little bit more to your own storytelling on these topics, because those are both terrific. And it's worth my just mentioning as well that having having written those, I'm currently writing a series of novels, which are called the Finfarren novels, and they're out there, and indeed they're now being published in the U.S. And one thing that might be interesting in the context of what you and I have been talking about is that those novels are set in a, in a rural island where people don't still speak Irish, unlike where I live, where they do. But Absolutely, there is still that sense of the past and of those traditions. And I'm writing about 21st century Ireland in those novels. And it's still completely redolent of those past traditions. They're absolutely still alive here. Uh, whether you're in a Gaelsach area or whether you're just outside Dublin, you don't have to go digging too deep. You'll find them. 